Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Dana Dennis, and I'm one of the hosts of the Anthropology Channel. Today, we're going to be talking with author Mark Leakty about his book, Far Out, Countercultural Seekers and the Tourist Encounter in Nepal. I'm really excited about this conversation with Mark. Um, and before we get started, just as a teaser, I wanted to read you a few sentences from the introduction of the book. So he says, Far Out tells the story of how generations of counterculturally inclined Westerners have imagined Nepal as a land untainted by modernity and its capital, Kathmandu, as a veritable synonym of Oriental mystique. What are the forms and consequences of these shifting countercultural projections since Nepal, and Kathmandu in particular, has become a tourist destination? Over the generations, how has Nepal figured into the Western imagination? How have these imagined Nepals changed through time, and how have each touristic generation's dreams shaped the kinds of tourism that emerged? Conversely, how did Nepalis respond to their, quote, discovery by throngs of foreigners? And how did foreigners and Nepalis alike make sense of some of the most bizarre characters and countercultural trends that the 20th century had produced. So that is um, all of that and more what we're going to be talking about today with author Mark Leakty. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Dana Dennis, one of the hosts of the Anthropology Channel, and I'm here with Mark Leakty, a professor in anthropology and history at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Mark is the co-editor of the journal Studies in Nepali History and Society, and much of his published work to date explores the emergence of middle-class consumer culture in Nepal. We're here to talk about his new book, Far Out, Countercultural Seekers and the Tourist Encounter in Nepal, which came out last year, 2017, from the University of Chicago Press. It's a really delightful book, and it received the 2017 Keku Nairoji Book Award for Himalayan Literature. So Mark, welcome to the show. Uh, we're really excited to talk to you today. Um, can you tell us a little bit first about how you came to write this book? Yeah, uh, this is a project that it, it, I've been interested in for many years. In fact, I've been collecting material on for probably close to 30 years. Um, but that information generally went into a folder somewhere uh, and was put on hold until I reached a point in my career where I felt that I could go back and work on a project that wasn't quite um, what down the, the straight and narrow path of uh, academic anthropology. And, and so uh, looking into the history of tourism is a top, especially in Nepal, I think is, is a fascinating topic for, for lots of people, but for me, um, it's a topic that had special interest, at least in part because of my own personal background. Um, for a variety of reasons, I had been able to, uh, I had spent time in South Asia uh, on and off since uh, childhood. And in fact, my first visit to Nepal was in 1969, when I was just a nine-year-old boy, when my parents and family were living on the subcontinent and we visited the city at what I now realize was sort of uh, the, the peak moment of the hippie phenomenon in Nepal. And it, it's something that as a nine-year-old, I was kind of vaguely aware of, but 
in fact, as as the years have gone by, it's it's a something it's something that I wanted. I, I became more and more interested in the the, the phenomenon that drove these uh, strange people to this out of the way place uh, back in the '60s and '70s, and wanted to learn more about it. Um, and for years, I've been looking for some kind of book that would would tell me what would answer those questions. You know, what is it that created Nepal as this particular kind of tourist destination? Uh, and in, in particular f- for a certain kind of countercultural Western figure, why this fascination with this place? And as I looked for that book to read, to explain those questions to me, I realized that, um, number one, that book didn't exist. And number two, if I wanted to read that book, I was probably going to have to write it myself. And so uh, that's what I eventually did. And uh, it took quite a while to do so. But um, that's the sort of where this book comes from to answer my own questions. And, you know, one of one of the main questions that I had with regard to this whole tourist phenomenon is, where where did people get their ideas about Nepal? Um, And in particular, how does Nepal emerge as this exotic, um, often spiritually, uh, uh, what, uh, fascinating place for generations of of Westerners? Why, why, and, and not just Nepal, but the Himalayas in general, how do the Himalayas become this place of desire where, uh, uh, the West can imagine a different kind of world from their own. And as I dug into that question, uh, you know, what I realized or what I discovered was that the the kinds of images that Westerners have had of Nepal and the Himalayas broadly uh, are not just things that characterized the uh, the moment of the 60s and 70s and the hippie generation, but these fantasies and uh, kind of imagined Himalayan places, these themes go way back in European and American history. And and so as I dug further into this, I I realized that um, in in effect, the the hippie phenomenon and, and the kinds of images that drove people to Nepal at that time were only the latest kind of reincarnation of, of a general uh, theme of of longing that gets projected onto Nepal by literally uh, generations, even centuries of of countercultural people. Thanks so much. Yeah, that is a really um, fascinating part of the book. Thinking about where did these ideas come from? These ideas about Nepal as a kind of Shangri La, as a as a mystical place um, that fulfills some kind of longing or imagination that Westerners have created. Um, kind of almost in complete um, <laughs> isolation from what actually is happening in Nepal, because Nepal is pretty much close to Westerners until um, the early 1950s. So could you tell us a little bit more about um, what some of those ideas were and how they developed and how they um, maybe how they were challenged a little bit when people started to go to Nepal and actually um, experienced Nepal as tourists in the 1950s? 
Yeah, let me try to do that. It's <clears throat> obviously a complicated story, but I mean, I think uh, there there would be various places where you could begin this narrative, uh, uh, going back, you know, probably into the at least into the 18th century. But I think <clears throat> for you know, I, I I decided to try to begin the story kind of in the mid to late 19th century because this is a moment when the West uh, is going through the Industrial Revolution, um, and there, in addition to its its fixation on on modernization and development, the West is the, this this moment has also created a kind of powerful backlash uh, of reaction against the the kind of rapid modernizations that are happening at the time, and this backlash gets represented in 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 all kinds of forms from the whole you know, movement of romanticism in literature to uh, the emergence of uh, a Marxist critique of capitalism at that time. But <clears throat> you also, you know, one of the kind of flavors of discontent and uh, anti-modern sentiment is one that is associated with this uh, movement that we know we know today as theosophy, and so I begin the story of the sort of European fixation on the Himalayas with Madame Blavatsky and theosophy, uh, and you know one one could go into more or less detail, but I think it, among other things, um, it's Blavatsky who, for a whole variety of reasons begins to focus her own um, anti-Western critique on and a kind of imagined non-West and an other place where uh, the, the contaminations and um, uh, discontents of, of Western modernity do not apply. And, and what's more, for her, the Himalayas become this place where um, a, a kind of ancient wisdom persists that will, in effect, um, liberate or, or enlighten the West uh, and bring it out of its current uh, alienated condition. And so she, she turns to the Himalayas as this resource, of course, an imagined resource, for a kind of countercultural critique of Western modernity at the time. And so it's Madame Blavatsky who, who claims to be in mystical psychic communication with what she calls the Himalayan Brotherhood or the uh, Great White Brotherhood of the Himalayas. Uh, these are astral spirits that she says reside in the hidden fastness of the high Himalayas, and she is able to communicate with these people psychically. Uh, in fact, uh, she has a, a cupboard in her house where uh, daily she opens a small drawer and there are written communications to her, uh, written on rice paper from the, the these Himalayan masters. And so this is how she communicates with this esoteric, uh, hidden fount of, 
or, or repository of wisdom that lies buried or hidden uh, mystically in the Himalayas. And so the Himalayas emerge, like I said, as this uh, um, bastion of, of wisdom that preserves uh, an ancient esoteric knowledge that is not only uh, valuable in itself, but will, will in effect redeem the West. And so theosophy offers this, uh, this promise of redemption for the ills of, of, the, of modernity. And that message was very appealing. Uh, we, we forget, or, or I had no idea, I had long heard of theosophy, but I had no idea that, you know, around a century ago, uh, theosophy was not, well, it it was, it was a bit out there, but it numbered among its adherents, many, many people that we today regard very highly, you know, know, everyone from Einstein and Edison to Mahatma Gandhi and, and William James and all kinds of people were theosophists. That doesn't necessarily mean that they embraced all of the kind of strange stuff that we associate with theosophy today. But nevertheless, um, this was a powerful movement. And, and Madame Blavatsky has been called probably the most influential woman of the late 19th and early 20th century. And, and so it's Blavatsky, among others, who helped create the Himalayas as this imagined countercultural zone um, but also, in a way, feed off of uh, an image that had already existed um, before Blavatsky's time. But but it's certainly at this point in the late 19th, early 20th century, with the effect of theosophy, that the Himalayas emerge as this screen on which the West can project its longings, its desires, uh, and try to find redemption from its own alienation. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's a great answer. I found Madame Blavatsky to be such a fascinating character, someone I certainly didn't know very much about before reading the book. And I think one thing that's really remarkable to me is just how durable some of her ideas about Nepal and the Himalayas still are. For instance, um, you know, as I was rereading that part of the book in preparation for this interview, I was thinking about the Marvel movie, Doctor Strange, that came out in 2016. And actually, um, part of the movie was filmed in Kathmandu when I was there in 2015 doing my fieldwork. Um, and everyone was very excited. You know, Benedict Cumberbatch was in town. It was a big deal. Um, but yeah, very much still participating in these ideas of like, you know, um, the Tibetan Brotherhood and the source of uh, some ancient mystical wisdom that can uh, purify or save the West from its own failings or something like that. So yeah, Madame Blavatsky, I think, is still um, with us in some ways in terms of how people think about Nepal. I, I fully agree. And, and that that whole um, Doctor Strange movie is just this this kind of <laughs> uh, orgy of, of uh, exoticism and, and, and frankly, silliness. Uh, and one thing that I, I was kind of surprised at is apparently – in the original Doctor Strange comic book, Nepal doesn't even figure into the story. Uh, this was somehow built into um, the the modern day uh, script and screenplay. But yes, in in this current film, 
Kathmandu sort of stands as the, you know, it, 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 its location is sort of like the navel of the universe. Um, all the other, all the rest of the film is shot in Hong Kong and New York and London. And then there's Kathmandu. But Kathmandu is, of course, where the hero goes in order to be uh, enlightened and enlightened. Right, exactly. And be, it acquires the mystical powers that make him the superhero. And, and of course, he acquires these powers uh, from a quasi-Buddhist Western nun figure um, who is played by Tilda Swinton. But I, I don't know if this is the place to bring this in, but in, in a lot of ways, Tilda, this Tilda Swinton character um, is an echo of the some of the the character one of the main characters in James Hilton's 1930s bestseller Lost Horizon, which it, it, exactly and 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 Lost Horizon on the one hand is premised on all kinds of theosophical ideas, but it, but like you suggest, it also th- these these tropes live on today because in lost horizon. So, okay. You have the, um, you have the, the, the monastery of what is it? The blue moon, um, or yeah, but, but it, it located in, in a, in a valley called Shangri-La in, in hidden in the Himalayas. But the people who live in Shangri-La are, or at least in the monastery, uh, we discover in reading the novel are are not Himalayans. They're not Tibetans. They're not you know some form of local people. They are instead mainly Westerners, and, and especially the leadership of of the Lamasery in Shangri La is the, you know the the High Lama turns out to be in the book a Catholic priest from Luxembourg. So you have this bizarre combination in in that novel of, of this quasi-Buddhist figure who is actually Western, and that then reappears in this, uh, this you know, last year's, um, whatever it was, um, film, uh, Doctor Strange, where, you, again, you have the, the leader of the monastery is this weird mix-up of Western and, and Asian but in both cases, it's that place in the Himalayas where one goes in order to be transformed and empowered. So, yeah, the, I agree completely that these these tropes of the exoticized and empowering and mystical Himalayas have been around for centuries, and they, they seem to just be undeterred even today. I could show you interviews that Cumberbatch and others, uh, you know, the directors of the film gave in which they, they repeat these sort of Himalayan exotic platitudes, almost verbatim to things I could, you know, lift out of 19th century accounts. It's just incredible. Um, you know, you, you have the director of the film saying how, um, Kathmandu is the most spiritual place he's ever visited. It, 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 he says it, it has the, the, the least Western influence of any city he's ever visited. Um, it, it's quiet, 
peaceful, blah, blah, blah. I mean, anyone who's actually visited Kathmandu with, with a, a clear mind, I think, uh, would have trouble recognizing the place that these people described. But it's that it's those fantasies that have not only driven, uh, you know, the, the, this film, but also it, it's those are the fantasies that have driven centuries uh, or at least a century worth of seekers to the Himalayas. Yeah, thank you. I, I led us on a little bit of a rabbit trail there, I should say, for our listeners. Um, the stuff about Dr. Strange is not actually in the book. Um, but I do think it's really important to talk about because it shows, you know, as we're saying that these ideas about the, the mystical Himalaya um, as this place where Western seekers can go and become enlightened or discover their true selves or whatever it is that they want to do um, to sort of uh, recover maybe from their own modernity or their own disillusionment or disenchantment that um, Nepal or Tibet or the Himalaya represents a place where they can go and do that. Um, yeah. And these tropes are really remarkably durable. So these, all these things are alive and well. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, and I'm laughing, you know, you, I was laughing as you were talking about um, what's been said about the movie because it just reminded me of things that people often say to me when I tell them that I do field work in Nepal. Um, and they think that I'm, you know, just sort of like, uh, living in bliss in some quiet, peaceful village on a mountain <laughs> or something. And I'm like, well, you know, I live in Kathmandu and, um, there's, there's a lot of air pollution. People are always like sort of aghast to hear that because it just, um, contrasts so drastically with what, uh, what they've built up in their imaginations. Um, but anyway, so speaking of the collision between imagination and reality, um, in the 1950s, um, Nepal, um, you know, due to some internal political changes, changes in its relationship with India and so forth, um, became open to Western visitors. And can you tell us a little bit more about those first people who actually came to Nepal as tourists and, um, maybe what kind of experiences they were looking for and what kind of things they found. Yeah, this is interesting because when, when Nepal is, is finally opened to potential Western tourism, this is at a moment when, on the one hand, you've had uh, at least a century of kind of pre, uh, what, uh, prefiguration so that, in 1950, Nepal has already been, been constructed in the Western imagination as this uh, zone of desire. And at, uh, simultaneously with Nepal's opening, as you said, in 1951, is the, to the Chinese invasion of Tibet. So China uh, effectively closes to Tibet to whatever little access Westerners had had at almost exactly the moment that Nepal opens. And so this century worth of pent-up desire to visit the, the mystical Himalayas now finds finally an outlet in, in Nepal that is tentatively opening itself up to the world. And so you, you get a, a proto or initial wave of tourists in the 1950s. Now, bear in mind that in the 1950s, this is before the era of anything that we would now recognize as mass tourism. You know, it, it, the people, if you were a European or American 
to get to Nepal was a, a very uh, costly proposition, and it involved often travel by literally by ocean liner. There was very little intercontinental mm-hmm. air travel at the time. Um, by the 50s, you had a situation where wealthy foreigners, mainly you know, in the post-World War II context, that meant wealthy Americans and usually elderly wealthy Americans, would be going on round-the-world ocean tours. And they began to um, arrive in Nepal by as parts of excursions or side trips from these um, around-the-world ocean tours. And so people would get off their boat in Bombay. They would fly uh, across North India to Nepal, spend a couple days and nights in Kathmandu, uh, fly back to Madras where their, their ocean liner had arrived, and then continue on their world tour. So Nepal got sort of fit into the itineraries of of a of a early wave of of Western tourists in the post war period. But part of my point is simply that the only people who could manage financially the the very expensive and time consuming trip to Nepal in the early decades were wealthy, usually elderly usually Americans. And so Kathmandu becomes this, uh, what today we would call a trophy destination for elites. Mm -hmm. And the kind of elites who go there, as I said, um, they're they're very different from the kinds that we associate with Nepal tourism in later decades. But uh, they, you know, uh, well, let let me also step back and say that the first hotels in Kathmandu for the at least first hotels of any kind of international standard were built precisely in order to accommodate these elderly rich uh, American tourists on their world tours. Uh, In fact, uh, they were designed to accommodate the number of people that would fit on an airplane uh, which at the day in that day, you know, a DC three could take about twenty two passengers, and so that was the the standard load, and the standard. That's what uh, hotels tried to accommodate. Um, so you you get the strange situation where you get very wealthy people showing up um, to to tick off Kathmandu as a destination, but there are also lots of famous movie stars and politicians and wealthy business people who show up. And so the, the, the guest lists in some of the, in the early hotels read like kind of a, a who's who of, of, of the mid 20th century from, you know, royalty to, um, to movie stars. Yeah. It's interesting. Kathmandu at that time seemed to have a certain glamor about it as a destination um, for those who could afford to get there. Um, but then once they arrived, the accommodations were often not actually um, very glamorous or had, you know, a certain kind of glamour mixed in with, um, you know, a lot of bed bugs or lack of hot water or those kinds of amenities as the, as, yeah, or rats or all kinds of things as the tourist infrastructure in Nepal was really just beginning to be built in the 1950s. 
Um, and I really enjoyed the parts of the book that had to do with that. So, um, but then, but then a change occurs, right? Because by the time, you know, by the time you were in Nepal, for instance, as a child, um, it had become the sort of center of the hippie world or, um, a really important hippie destination. And you, you say in the book that, you know, the overland hippie trail was called actually the road to Kathmandu as if it is not just a side trip anymore for wealthy people doing their around the world ocean liner tours, but, um, for the hippies, Kathmandu is like a destination in and of itself. So can you tell us a little bit more about how that shift occurred? Yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating question. And, and, uh, I mean, in one way, it's a combination of, uh, demographics and and technology because it as the post-war baby boom generation the, this huge um kind of swelling of the population that occurs after the the war as that generation comes of age and as they come of age in the context of a, a booming western economies what you find is a growing population of middle class young people with access to money, uh, who enjoy the benefits of a very strong economy in a world that has is still the rest of the world is, is still you know, uh, in in economic uh, conditions that make travel you know if you can get out of the Western world, your money goes a very long distance, and so. As the baby boom generation comes of age, as they have access to to resources, um, they be, and and as the countercultural uh, pendulum begins to swing back toward uh, this sense of alienation and desire that came to characterize the '60s generation, as that. As all those phenomena occur, again, Western countercultural eyes focus on Himalayas, and Kathmandu becomes the the easiest access point to that exotic uh, imagined world. So um, it it begins slowly at first. I mean, um, even a decade before. Uh, the the word hippie had been coined. You have uh, an earlier generation of kind of radicalized youth that we today associate with the Beat Generation. The Beat Generation is discovering South Asia. They are discovering uh, so called Eastern religion, and they're beginning to fixate on um, Asia in general, but uh, on on the on the Himalayas and Nepal in particular, and so by the mid '60s, you begin when when you look at tourist statistics that were kept by the Nepal government, you see an interesting phenomenon. Uh, the number of tourists is rising steadily, but the age of uh, the average age of tourist arrivals is also dropping fast. So mm-hmm. within a decade, you see the average um, tourist in Nepal go from being elderly and rich to being young and middle class. And and 
that represents this Western youth discovery of, uh, of, a, of an Asian alternative place. And I mean, I think it's also worth pointing out that, that it's in this post-World War II baby boom generation that we really, uh, we find for the first time something that we would today call a youth culture. And part of that youth culture was wrapped up in the idea of, of, of rebellion against their parental generation. And part of the, you know, part of that rebellious uh, impulse found expression in travel and in, uh, in, so, you know, travel becomes a kind of metaphor for uh, critique of the West by leaving the West, one critiques it. And therefore, Therefore, I think it, it, it strikes me that, that uh, Kathmandu <clears throat> had, the, had a number of things going for it, but especially, let's say, if you were a North American, and if your goal was to get away from home and go away as far as possible, you literally could not go any farther away from home than Kathmandu. Kathmandu was on the other side of the world, and many people... Uh, remark that once they arrived in Nepal, any any direction they went was back toward home, hmm. and oh, and so uh, Nepal became this this uh, uh, this icon of of distance and escape, and it it became, you know, and therefore it became a very useful place to imagine the non-West or a a pre-modern West that was uncontaminated. It was as far away as you could get. That's the point. And and distance then is thought, or is is yeah, is imagined to be uh, somehow distance in in not just in space but in time. You know, uh, it, it's Kathmandu is imagined as this pre-modern, non-modern place where one can still find a non-alienated existence. So uh, again, uh, yeah, so go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, can you tell us a little bit more what that, um, that non-alienated existence was like, um, or just, you know, on a sort of day to day level, what did, what did these folks do in Kathmandu? Were they just sort of sitting around imagining themselves or, well, you know, what were they doing? Yeah. Well, it, you know, um, certainly one, you, you, they were doing a lot of things and, and, <laughs> and not everyone was doing the same things. And of course, um, yeah. And, you know, there were, a f uh, a few people within the, this community of, of sort of resident foreign, whatever you want to call them, hippies or seekers. Some of them, were deeply involved, deeply invested in Eastern religion. Some became serious practitioners of uh, uh, Hinduism, of, of Tibetan Buddhism. Some became you know, very serious students of Asian history, for example. But um, those people were probably the minority uh, among a, a larger population that was there more just for, I guess you could call it escapist reasons. And on the one hand, um, they had 
good reason to escape. Many of these were uh, anti-war activists who were looking to escape the draft. Others mm-hmm. were escaping what they felt was uh, an oppressive Western culture that had, in, a, in some ways, declared war on, on, on Western youth culture. Uh, you know, many people experienced, for example, the Nixon era war on drugs as a, a war on youth. Mm-hmm. And war on youth expression, and so you you see this um, explosion of of youth arrivals uh, in 1969, right at the moment, uh, you know, following the uh, election of Richard Nixon and and that those that terrible tumultuous year of 1968 when uh, youth countercultural hopes had risen very high, only to be just uh, Dashed in a in a in a terrible um, sequence of assassinations and riots and, and brutality. After that moment, many many people fled the the West and ended up in Kathmandu. And so the, these are people that that were you know they do have a political orientation, uh, but on the other hand, um. A, you know, a lot of them saw Nepal and, and Kathmandu as, as, you know, like I said, as a place of escape, but also of, uh, you know, a place of pleasure. On the one hand, you know, well, they, they could hope to um, keep alive the kinds of Western youth cultural uh, practices that they had tried to cultivate uh Back home, which were increasingly unwelcome, those that culture could be maintained in a place like Kathmandu, and you know one has to raise the topic of drugs, so-called drugs, because to the extent that uh, mind-altering substances had been important to the the countercultural generation of the '60s back in the in the West. Those continue to be important in Nepal, and and frankly, one of Nepal's attractions was its cheap and uh, high quality cannabis proje- uh, products. You know, so yeah, uh, Nepal, yeah. Nepali, Nepali hashish became uh, world famous. And in fact, many people told me that uh, the first time they ever heard of Nepal was by reading the the labels of. Uh, hashish packets that they bought on the streets of New York or Toronto. So uh, Nepal gets associated with cannabis and and drugs broadly, and that whole psychedelic culture then is kept alive in Nepal at a time when it was increasingly under pressure and, in fact, criminalized back at home. Because in Nepal, uh, laws, there there were no... um, there were no laws against the the uh, commerce and consumption uh, of uh, cannabis products. So, so to answer your question, I mean, for for better or worse, uh, for quite a number of people, uh, one of the attractions of Nepal was its access to mind-altering substances, and uh, by all accounts, um, many many people spent much of their time in Nepal stoned. Um, which you can, however you want to deal with that. uh. Sure. Sure. If they weren't able to do it in Richard Nixon's America, they could always go to Kathmandu um, at least for a while there while it was legal. 
Um, so one of the things that I really love about the book and I think is really important about the book is that um, it's not just about sort of recounting the experiences and the perspectives of of these Westerners coming to Nepal, but you have a lot of really rich material about um, Nepali people's perspectives on the development of tourism and the hippie era. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the many ways that Nepali people encountered these strange foreigners and what they were able to, to learn and to gain through these intercultural encounters? Yeah, I can try. Um, I, I, you, <laughs> Again, yeah, this is a, a, a big part of the book, so I'm asking well, you to sum it up. <laughs> well, it, it, but it's, it, you're, you're absolutely right that I, I really, really wanted to uh, make this book not just about the foreign experience of Nepal, but the Nepali experience of foreigners. And, and yet, it, this is a, ethnographically and historically, this is a challenge because as a foreigner myself, Asking questions, asking questions of Nepalis about the the past is, is a a little bit fraught. In that um, there's a discourse about tourism that Nepalis have among themselves that they don't often uh, share with foreigners. And so I, I want to premise my my remarks here by the, saying that I'm very grateful to a number of Nepali co-workers who I worked with who were able to do uh, a series of interviews with all kinds of people that brought in information and perspectives that I, I personally never could have gotten. Even if I was asking the same questions to the same people, I likely would not have gotten the same answers. And so I'm, I'm grateful to uh, Nepali co-workers for opening up uh, some um, some really important perspectives. But that said, I mean, uh, I can, what we learned was that it was very difficult for Nepalis to figure out who these, these people were. On the one hand, you know, in, in the earlier decades of the tourism phenomenon, the, the elderly foreigners that came fit the Nepali idea of what foreigners were. Basically, uh, clean. Cut, they were rich. Rich, clean cut, <laughs> um, kind of uh, respectable uh, people mm -hmm. that that fit the bill of a of a kind of colonial imagination, uh, that, that, or what the what, for example, the British had hoped to project as a as a, a Western identity of, of elite power. The early generation fit of, of tourists fit that definition. However, when these young people began to show up. Uh, and, and show up barefoot and bedraggled and um, in some extreme cases, poor and literally begging on the streets, uh, Nepalis had, had to figure out what was going on. And, and at first, uh, it was very confusing. And, and, but um, among other things, I mean, some people that we, we talked to, you know, some people understood these new ragged, uh, foreigners who were often uh, interested in religion, Nepalis interpreted them as some version of, of, of a religious ascetic, someone like a sadhu or a, um, a fakir or, or one of these uh, South Asian religious uh, renunciants. And so that was an existing category that some people could use to try to fit these foreigners into it. 
And in some ways, um, it wasn't a bad fit uh, because these people often were interested in religion. They were often uh, very, you know, anti-establishment, countercultural types, which is exactly how you would describe, for example, some of these radical Hindu sadhus who go around smeared with ash and, you know, uh, upturning all social conventions. So, yeah, for, for some people, uh, these foreigners were kind of weird um, religious ascetics. Um, for other people, they look to these, you know, uh, you know, people of another generation look to these new, these young foreigners as bearers of modern consumer goods, for example. So um, Nepali youth by this time are, are well informed about what's going on in global uh, youth culture, youth fashions. Nepali young people are interested in jeans and, you know, you know, Levi's and that kind of thing. And so you get a, uh, a commerce between these foreigners, these foreign hippies and local Nepali young people in, in, in goods like clothing, records, electronics, and what have you. Um, and, and still other Nepalis, maybe a, a smaller mi minority, saw these foreigners as, um, as seekers. And uh, so a certain number of Nepalis, especially more intellectually inclined these were people that were also on their own kind of um, spiritual quests or, or at least intellectual quests that often had to do with questioning the nature and value of, of modernity and its promises. And so you find a number of very interesting cases of intersection between Nepali intellectuals and the more intellectually inclined among the, this generation of hippie arrivals and, 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 so there you, you find a very different kind of relationship. And so I guess all I'm saying is that you, uh, there's, there's a whole spectrum of, of different responses and understandings that Nepalis brought to their encounter with these foreigners. Yeah, definitely. And it's a really um, a fascinating thing to read about this broad spectrum of interactions um, and to think about my own interactions in Nepal um, with folks, you know, starting from 2011 in my first visit there. And um, just, yeah, I guess in a way I'm sort of thinking about the, the genealogy of those kinds of interactions. Um, I don't remember if I ever told you this story, but um, you know, when I'm in Nepal doing field work, I try to dress in what I consider to be a sort of respectable way. I don't really want to look like a hippie or a Dharma bum. Um, that doesn't accord with my self-perception, I guess, as an anthropologist. Um, so, but my, my host family that I lived with for, for several years, um, one day presented me with a pair of these like drop crotch pants that a lot of, um, tourists wear. Mm -hmm. And they said to me, they're like, we noticed that all the other white people have some of these mm. and you don't. So we thought you might like to, <laughs> to have them. And I was a little um, mortified, but also I was like, you know, I, I really, I see where they got this idea and, um, I never wore the pants outside of the house, but I, you know, they make great pajamas. So yeah, you should dress like your own species. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They were like, you don't seem like, you know, how to be a white person very well. We're going to help you out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a very kind impulse on their part. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
so, okay. So then the last part of the book, um, focuses on kind of the, the closing of what we might consider like the golden age of the hippies, um, in Nepal due to, um, for instance, changes in Nepal's laws regarding marijuana and other drugs. Um, and, a sort of rebranding that takes place in the tourist industry in Nepal where um, adventure tourism kind of becomes the focus. And that's both adventure in terms of um, sort of physical adventures like going trekking, going rafting, um, but what you also call like spiritual adventure or adventures of self-discovery, which kind of follows on some of the um, the stuff that we've been talking about. So can you explain a little bit how that transition came about and why you see those kind of two forms of adventure tourism as, as parallel with each other in some ways? Well, to begin with, I mean, yeah, I, one of the things I try to stress is that around the mid-1970s, Nepal, for the first time, really embraces tourism as an industry. Up until this time, tourism had been a relatively marginal part of the economy. But at a certain point, Nepalis discover that there is serious money to be made. And it's at that point that this, a combination of state and business leaders uh, grab the Nepal tourism product. And, and uh, you know, for the first time, they begin to think of Nepal as a product. And that product is something that can then be sold and marketed and, as you say, branded. Now, the problem was for these people that the kinds of tourists that were dominating the market in the early 1970s were these hippies that, uh, you know, the goal of, the, of this kind of radical youth generation was often to spend as much time in Nepal as possible and spend as little money as possible, which makes them not, not yeah. ideal tourists uh, from the, the viewpoint of business. And so the, this new branding uh, process of Nepal, where, where Nepal begins to manage itself, uh, is one of it, the first things that they do is to try to get rid of the, uh, the the hippies and to try to transform Nepal's brand image away from that hippie phenomenon. That involves finally the delegalization of cannabis, which in some ways was more of a symbolic act than um, something that had much of an impact. But they also begin to promote Nepal as a tourist destination, excuse me, as an adventure destination. So this is the time at mm -hmm. which the state uh, begins to heavily promote trekking. Trekking is a phenomenon that had been around for a while, but the state uses trekking uh, from the mid seventies onward as the kind of linchpin to its promotion uh, because trekking is something that can bring in more money and um, attract a different kind of person that's not going to just sit around and, and smoke pot. That's the logic. So trekking becomes <laughs> get him out there right. in the mountains. <laughs> and the other the fact of the other fact of the matter is that by the mid nineteen seventies, the whole countercultural pendulum had again begun to swing back toward more conservative um, 
forms of expression. Uh, and, and so the, you know, with the economic downturn of the 70s, uh, you don't have the same kind of economies that made hippie tourism possible. And in that context, people still wanted to come to Nepal, but they didn't, those who came tended more to be uh, young professional types who had access to money, but not much time. So they were kind of the inverse of the hippies who had lots of time and no money. These people, the new tourists mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. Uh, money, but not much time. And and so trekking became a product that could be fit into um, an adventure holiday, you know, an adventure vacation. So, um, and, and in fact, this became very successful. Uh, Nepal uh, is among the the first and and to this day primary you know world destinations for trekking not surprisingly because of the the mountains that it has to offer that are uh, on you know without parallel in the world so this is one kind of adventure then and we see the emergence of a a huge trekking economy that is still uh, vital to nepal's tourism industry now but also i mean yeah i argue that in in a way you, we also see the the reemergence of of a kind of spiritual tur- tourism that uh, had been around for a long time. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea of the Dharma bum goes back to a Kerouac book from the fifties, but it's in the it's really in the eighties and nineties that Nepal emerges for a new generation of religious seekers as a primary destination, at least. Well, primarily, I would say because of the world's growing fascination with Tibetan Buddhism. And again, uh, with Tibet Mm -hmm. itself shut, Nepal becomes a kind of quasi-Tibet for these people. And notably, both Tibetans and Nepalis uh, take advantage of this fact and, and begin to actively court Western Tibetan Buddhist seekers. And so part of what I try to describe in the last chapter is is really the birth of Tibetan Buddhism's outreach to the world, partly as a strategy of, of self-survival. But you, you see this uh, emerging first in, in West, the first Western-oriented monasteries in Nepal or in the world uh, for Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and as Tibetan Buddhism spreads in popularity around the world, more and more people turn to Nepal as a, a place of spiritual, as a spiritual destination, a place to engage in meditation retreats and what have you. And, and so I see, and, and all, all of these products, these you know, religious oriented products are in effect just that they're, they are, bought and sold. And so I, I consider them to be a form of adventure and, uh, you know, adventure tourism in, in itself. So, um, that's one of the topics that I try to explore in the last chapter, which is also to suggest that many of the same exoticizing, spiritualizing trends that, um, have characterized, Western perceptions of Nepal from, you know, for centuries, again, are very much alive and well and, and manifest in this phenomenon of, of Dharma tourism.
It's not often, I will say, as a reader, it's not often that I get to the end of a book that's almost 400 pages long. And I think, no, more, more of the story. What comes next? Um, because the book does end um, roughly around the the early 1980s. Um, but I was, um, you know, eager to keep reading because, yeah, I, I see so many of these things sort of carrying over and continuing to evolve in the present day. Um, you can write that so. Book. No, I was about to say, are you going to write that book? Because I would, uh, I would happily read a, a sequel to this one. Um, I just for our listeners, I want you all to know that this is a really rich book. We've barely scratched the surface, but um, I've kept Mark on the line now for almost an hour. So, Mark, I wanted to ask you: um, Are there any things about the book that we haven't gotten to talk about yet that you would like to highlight? Well, um, I think. Just uh, th th this is a, a work that is not overtly theoretical in in any shape or form, and, and partly because I wanted to I wanted this book to be accessible and and fun for a reader. But I will say that I do have some sort of covert, quasi theoretical agendas in the book, and and foremost among them is simply to argue that um, that tourism is a phenomenon that that does that does not just happen to Nepal or Nepalis but that um, is actively managed by Nepal and Nepalis uh, and from the very beginning I, you know of the story I try to stress that um, Nepalis used tourists and tourism as a resource for their own projects for their own um, agendas in, in ways that were often in in contrast to the the very things that the tourists themselves had come to find or escape, but so that that's one of my agendas is is to 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 put agency back into the hands of Nepalis for this phenomenon that happened in their country. Um, I also want to you know suggest that um, when we think about youth movements, that that again. Uh, one of the things I try to stress is that uh, there, the very similar kinds of youth movements were alive and stirring within Nepal at, at the same moment that the, the, those movements abroad were bringing young people to Nepal. And so you find Nepali youth being, uh, in effect, radicalized or, or disenchanted by uh, certain promises of modernity. And they show up in, in Kathmandu at the same time that these foreigners are showing up in Kathmandu. And, and so uh, I guess, again, in part, I'm trying to suggest that um, what's happening in, in Nepal is not just, uh, it's not just a foreign phenomenon that is, is implanted into this Nepali space, but rather that Nepal is itself an uh, an actor on the very same world stage as the uh, the people that that show up um, uninvited on its doorstep. That so that ne what's happening in Nepal isn't just a derivative experience, but but really uh, a simultaneous uh, co-production of of a shared modern experience. Yeah, and I think that comes across really well in the book that we're all. Um, you know, as, as Westerners, as Nepalis, we're all in the modern world together, 
And that might look a little bit different for us in our different contexts. But um, yeah, there's definitely a strong sense in the book that there's an active um, collaboration and co-creation of these um, intercultural experiences. So yeah, it was a, a great read. I hope our all of our listeners get the chance to um, to dive into the book. Um, and Mark, as our last question, I wanted to ask, um, what are you working on now? You said this book was a long time in the making. So um, how does it feel to have it finished and, and what's on the plate now? Well, I'm I'm glad to have it done, um, and it was a lot of fun to do. But but I, I think I've I've said my piece, and I'm I'm hoping that you know, yeah others will join the conversation. Uh, for now, I, I'm I'm doing something completely different, which uh, may ha- be of no interest to readers of this book. But I I've been spending I've spent a couple of years looking into uh, the emergence of uh, hydropower generation in Nepal, and I'm I'm working on a kind of social history of, of infrastructural development around hydropower and some of the cultural politics of development that have surrounded that scenario. Uh, and, you know, I, I could go into a lot more detail of that, but I, I don't know if you want to. Hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, since you're still in the middle of the book, maybe we'll, we'll let it rest for now, but you can come yeah. back on the podcast and tell us okay. more about it when the next well, book comes out. Um, look forward and- to it. Yeah, we'll look forward to that. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Dana. It's been a pleasure. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Bye. That was my conversation with Mark Leakty about his excellent book, Far Out, Countercultural Seekers and the Tourist Encounter in Nepal. I hope you'll join us again next time for more fascinating conversations with authors here on the New Books Network. Thanks. Thanks.